Good morning, church. Would you take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. This morning, as I mentioned last week, we'll be in chapter 13. We're going to deal with the first half of the chapter going all the way through verse 14 this morning. And we will conclude our study of Nehemiah next week. Reading this morning from Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they separated all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was put in charge over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, also new wine and oil, commanded for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discerned the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a chamber for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very evil to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the chamber. Then I said the word, and they cleansed the chambers, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also came to know that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, so the Levites and the singers who did, not, who did the work, had fled each to his own field. So I continue, contended against the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and had them stand in their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, new wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses, I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padeah of the Levites, and in addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were counted as faithful. And it was their task to apportion everything to their relatives. Remember me for this, O oh my God, and do not blot out my loving kindness, which I have shown for the house of my God and its responsibilities. And thus far is the reading of the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. As we always do, let's ask God's blessing now on our time. Father, we come to you as we do each week, desiring to continue in worship for many of us, even beginning to enter in to worship. We've sung the songs, we've heard the prayers, we've seen the offering be passed. And yet, because of our own sins and struggles, we are still 
having difficulty entering in to that place of worship where Jesus is at the center of all things. Would you enable each of us this morning, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to worship Christ as we go through this word this morning? And in seeing him, that we might be ordered rightly before him, that we might be able to throw out the things in our lives that are keeping us from true and undefiled worship of Jesus. We ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. Well, when you think about it, this final track, if you will, in the record of Nehemiah is a real record scratcher. For 12 chapters now, and 22 chapters total if you include the book of Ezra prior to this, the symphony of the resurgence of banished Israel has been building like a crescendo to a grand climax in which all the instruments are playing in perfect harmony in a bright major chord. And then, you know what it sounds like when the record scratches. It's one of those really terrible noises. What happened? What went so wrong? Where's the happy conclusion, the soft serenity of the fading melody, the smiling bow of the proud conductor, the applause of the people listening? Without a doubt, we are meant to see at least one thing in the text this morning, and that is that the work of the restoration of the restored people of Israel is far from finished. One has to wonder, if on the day when Israel was reconstituted, think back a few weeks, after the law was read and the food was divvied out, the deep red wine was overflowing in the cups of the people, the psalms of ascent were being sung through one by one, had the people who with their one voice swore allegiance to God and to his covenant, had they really considered how much this holiness they desired? Had they really considered how much it would cost them? J.C. Ryle once said, It costs something to be a real Christian, according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, and Egypt to be forsaken a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be won. Conversion is not putting a person in an armchair and taking them easily to heaven. It is the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Well, we came into this study of Ezra and Nehemiah in hopes of seeing how God has in the history of his people Israel, rebuilt a covenant community from the ashes of its former greatness. There might be a lot of application points for us in our present context. And then we want to ask him, having seen it in the text, Lord, do it again. Do it again in our day. But as we finish and we prepare to head into the Gospel of Luke, consider Jesus' question to his disciples, which this question of Jesus is recounted only in the Gospel of Luke. And that question is, have you counted the cost of being a disciple? Well, verse 1 of our text this morning, in chapter 13, informs us that on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. 
Now, I'm reading from the LSV translation this morning, and I don't actually prefer this rendering of the text on that day. It sounds identical to this recitation of the Pentateuch um, that it came on the same day as the events of the previous two chapters when the wall was dedicated and all that singing happened. However, and I don't want to bog you down with a lot of Greek phraseology and word studies this morning, the grammatical construction here doesn't suggest a precise moment, but a period of time. So the Christian Standard Bible translates the first verse of chapter 13 with the words, at that time, you can see that it was a period of time that's being referred to in the original language. Now the author wants us to see that the devotion of the people to the study and application to the Word of God continued after the dedication of the wall and the temple had taken place. This is a big win for the people of Israel. At least some in their congregation were committed to continued obedience to the words of God, every one of them. You've heard the phrase, prosperity breeds complacency. It would have been easy for everyone to have nestled into their rebuilt and fortified and safe city and then ignore the word of God, ignore the direct commands of God and the covenants that these people made with Yahweh, their Lord. And by the way, if they had done that, it wouldn't be the first time. D.L. Moody said, This book, speaking of the scriptures, will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And he's right. It's common for pastors to ask their congregations if they are regularly in the Word of God. You have regular rhythms in the Word of God. I'd expect most people in our church to reply that they do. Even a, a commitment that they would never compromise on. I'm always up at the same time every day. I get this much time in the Word. I'm dedicated to it. And I would say to that, excellent. Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't let the world, the flesh, and the devil come in and rob you from the manna that you need each day. Pastor J.C. Ryle again exhorted his congregation. He said, read the Bible daily. Make it a part of your everyday business to read and meditate on some portion of God's word. Gather your manna fresh each morning, he continues. Choose your own seasons and hours. Do not scramble over or hurry your reading. Give your Bible the best and not the worst part of your time. But whatever plan you pursue, he finishes, let it be a rule of your life to visit the throne of grace and the Bible every single day. Well, in light of this morning's text and this theme of counting the cost of discipleship that I'm thinking about as we work our way through this text, I want to ask you a different question question about your attention to the Word of God. When is the last time your reading of God's Word cost you something? When is the last time your reading and attention to the Word of God, your meditations, your prayers upon closing your Bible in the morning, when is the last time that that cost you something? I'll ask it another way. Do you come to the Word of God to be conformed to the image of Christ regardless of the costs? Or do you come, like 
Ananias and Sapphira with exceptions, with things held back, with closets of idols that you don't want Jesus to touch. Look at what the people discovered here at the beginning of chapter 13. Continuing from verse 1 into verse 2. There was found written in the book of Moses that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. That's verses 1 and 2 of our text. Imagine being the head of a Jewish household whose next-door neighbor just happens to be from Moab. And everybody in the congregation knows it. They're sitting there, they're hearing this reading, and then he reads, no Ammonite or Moabite should come into the congregation, and then everybody kind of turns their heads towards you. Because they know, doesn't that guy live next to you? Well, he's, he's actually lived next to me for years, and, and our kids play together. He's, he's a nice guy. I mean, I've had some opportunities to even kind of give a nuanced approach to the Jewish faith to him. So maybe you get a little flustered, you know, like, is this really, is this really important? I mean, come on, that law was written how long ago? He's a really nice guy. Our families were always visiting together. We trade eggs for milk. He lets me pirate his Netflix account. By the way, you want to know how Marxist social justice made its way into the church? It was through benevolent souls dealing gently with sin in the camp like that. That's how it made its way in. But the word of God is clear. It said, the Ammonites and the Moabites have got to go. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the congregation of Israel. Now, beloved, if you don't come to the word of God as wet clay in the potter's hands, you will, over time, become harder and harder to the truth until you become unusable. Jesus leads his people to a word that cuts. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we don't like that, so we do our own cutting, and take out the pieces of the Bible that we don't want to hear. Jesus warned us of those with hard hearts when he said, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. That's from Matthew 13, verse 14. So what is required of us when we come to the text of Scripture? That we lay down our lives. As James says, that we become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. James goes on to say a little later on, to be like one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of freedom, and abides by it. I counted the cost. I see in the word of God, I've got to do this really hard thing. It doesn't matter. It's the word of God. I have to obey it. James says, this man will be blessed in what he does. Now, how do you prepare for a Bible study that costs you something? Let me give you three things to consider. First, 
Come with your mind set on the reality that you must have Christ or else you will die. You're coming to the Word of God every day because you must have Christ or else you will die. If anyone does not abide in me, Jesus says, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them into the fire and they are burned from John 15 verse 6. This does not mean, and Jesus isn't intending to communicate here, that he can get you into the kingdom, but then it's all up to you as to whether or not you stay in the kingdom. Don't insult him who began a good work. He promised to see it to completion. But when you were born again, you were converted to an altogether different source of life. The God-man, Christ Jesus. J.C. Ryle again. He says, The heart of a man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied until it comes to Christ. It is only they who hear Christ's voice and they who follow Him and they who feed on Him by faith who are filled. We come to the Word to be with Christ, whether he's the point of the passage or not. That's why we come each morning. The second thing, come to your study of the word of God with no negotiating. In Luke 14, Jesus said, listen to this, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. There were two absolutes in that statement. None of you and all of his possessions. When you come to the Word of God, you don't have rights to anything. It's like going through baggage check with TSA. Everything is exposed. And if you won't let something go, you don't get to fly. Jesus owns the rights to everything. And it must be on the table if you are ever to draw nourishment from your Savior. Everything. Everything's on the table. Lastly... Come ready to read your own mail. It's common to notice other people's sins in your Bible study. Husbands and wives do this all the time. See, it says here that my wife should be submissive to me. Written in a passage of Scripture addressed to women, not their husbands. Right here it says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. So my husband needs to honor my convictions for an exclusively plant-based diet for our entire family. I don't think that's how that works. Go to the text as though it's your body that's on the altar, not someone else's. And then, because your body's on the altar, do what it says. Do whatever it says. Beloved, reading the Word of God should cost us something. It should. And it should regularly be costing us something. Further up. Further in. I ask again, have you considered how much it could cost you to submit yourself to God and to His Word? Israel had to kick out all the Ammonites and Moabite neighbors, regardless of what value they placed in that community. And then in this next section, verses 4 through 9... Nehemiah takes us back in time, so to speak. He took us to an event when he happened to be out of town. 
He spent 12 years on leave to Jerusalem, but that time that he was in Jerusalem had expired, and so he had to go back to King Artaxerxes. We don't know how long he was away from Canaan, but at some point he sensed that he needed to go back to the promised land. He asked for another home assignment, if you will. He probably sensed that the work was far from over. And you can see this morning in the text he was right. In verse 4, we learn that Eliashib, now full stop, that name should ring a bell. He's mentioned as a priest in this text. If you look back just one chapter, you'll see he's not a priest, he's the high priest. We're talking about a very significant figure here. In verse 4, we learn that Eliashib had been running up basically an Airbnb out of one of the side rooms of the temple building so that his buddy Tobiah wouldn't have to live under the bridge. Now, their families had intermarried somehow. That's why it talks about them being relatives of one another in the text. And the result was a compromise that came to live within the very walls of the holy temple of God. And it goes deeper than Tobiah. We'll see next week in verse 28 that the high priest's grandson, this is Eliashib's grandson, got married to a foreigner, one of the daughters of the infamous Sanballat. So Sanballat, Tobiah, the main antagonist throughout this entire narrative, and the high priestly family is intermarrying with them. This is significant. In one sinful act, the high priest Eliashib both defiled the ceremonial cleanness of the temple and compromised the new covenant, that is the renewing of the old covenant, of the people to not neglect the house of their God. He pushed God out, and since there's no such thing as a vacuum, he brings in sin. He's somewhat brazen about it, too. You notice in the text that Nehemiah says that it was a large room that Tobiah got. There's no attempt to hide what, what he's doing wrong here. He believes oh, this man deserves this space. He deserves this much room. He deserves to be this close to the temple. Upon his return, Nehemiah discovers this brazen act, and he applies, as you would expect, a measured and reasonable and carefully nuanced response the kind of response that would get a pastor kicked out of the Acts 29 network. And he calls this act evil two times in the same breath. The second time he doubles down saying that it is very evil. The KJV says, and it grieved me sore. So Nehemiah personally himself, with his own two hands, throws out all of Tobiah's stuff, and as the room cleansed, and everything put back the way that it should be. Last night during family worship, I, I read the passage for Sunday's message. I typically will do that for the children. We'll talk over the text for the next day and discuss what they might hear on Sunday morning. And after reading the text, Kara, my oldest, responded, Nehemiah sounds just like Jesus turning over tables in the temple. That's exactly the picture that you're supposed to get here. He's a type of Christ, cleansing the temple, violence against sin, even though it 
came at a high cost. Jesus didn't make a lot of friends when he did this. And I asked the kids last night, so where is the temple of God today? There were various answers, but we eventually came to Paul's answer to this question in 1 Corinthians 3. He says in the ESV translation, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. What excuse, beloved, can we give for letting a little sin have quarter in the now and forever only legitimate temple of God on earth? That is within the believer. We are the temple of God. And all of the space that God has cleansed in us rightfully belongs to King Jesus. Creating a vacancy for sin is an abomination to God of the greatest kind. Predominantly because it's a value statement. We're running that cost analysis. We're just running it in the opposite direction. We're like Eustace Scrub. We leave in a bitter rage the company of those who love us. And we want to cling to some shiny treasure that just ends up turning us into a dragon. There are, there are Christian women who are careful to never speak disrespectfully to their husbands, especially in public. But when life seems out of control or when they feel like they've been crossed or not considered by their husband, they run to that temple storeroom, fling open the doors. Not to find Christ, not the word or self-examination that leads to repentance, but to grab hold of some anger or bitterness in order to create an icebox moodiness atmosphere in the home. Everyone else is forced to walk on eggshells, and she feels a little bit more like the world becomes hers again. Something similar happens in moments of a woman's fearfulness or anxiousness. She opens the storehouse again, and there's all the furniture that's laid out for her fears. Room for it to become comfortable and stay for a while. And so she decides to sit down. And take a turn. Over time, these sinful behaviors become like old friends, like family. Again, the prescient rile. Our sins are often as dear to us as our children. We love them. We hug them. We cleave to them. And we delight in them. To part with them is as hard as cutting off the right hand or plucking out the right eye but it must be done. The first step in dealing violently with your sin is to be honest about the nasty cancerous mass that it is. Nehemiah, it says in verse 7, discerned the evil that Eliashib was up to. He acknowledged it. He knew biblically where they were in the wrong, how this was defiling the temple. He could point to book, chapter, and verse. Sisters, acknowledge that every attempt to control your home or world through mood, 
Mandate or manipulation is giving quarter to sin. Count the cost. These means of control provide a sense of comfort, of assurance, but they are killing you. You can tell the doctor that he's completely wrong about the stage 4 cancer diagnosis and that that tumor is actually a part of your body that gives you something to lean on. It's ridiculous, isn't it? But it's killing you. The sin is killing you. Admit it to yourself. Brothers, the fact that any of your wives live in this state and you have at this point been afraid to lovingly lead them out of it puts you in the family line of Eliashib. You are willing to let sin have a room in the temple of your wife and you're just hoping perhaps that she'll grow out of it. If you're too afraid to confront her with gentleness, but also firmness, that she is in sin and that you will not allow her to ruin the atmosphere of the family or get her way through covert contracts, you are agreeing with Adam that the right thing to do is to let the dragon tell your wife what God said while you sit by. Identify the sin and identify the place that it's taken up in your heart. Do that according to the word of God. Don't call it a difficult day. Call it a fit of rage. Don't call it, I'm having a firm voice with the kids. Call it harshness. When you biblically identify sin, it makes the next steps easier to accomplish. And the second one is this, to confess and forsake it. He who covers his sin, Proverbs 28 says, will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. This is the part where Nehemiah starts to chuck furniture. This is the part we look forward to. Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall and just watch chairs and sofas go flying out of the temple room, crashing on the dirt? This is what the Puritans would call, in our own lives, the vomiting of the soul. I finally realize I've got that bug, and it makes me sick, and I've got to get it out. Ladies, if you manipulate the home with your emotions, confess it to God and to your husbands. Husbands, confess to your wife your unwillingness and fear to approach her in her sin. Children, confess to your parents the ways that you try and subvert them, lie to them, steal from them, or manipulate your brothers and sisters. There could be a host of other things going on too. It may be more than one thing stacked on top. There could be a whole room full of comfort that you created for your sin. Pastor Toby Sumter describes this process as removing one brick from the wall of sin at a time and working your way down. In line with our text this morning, it's like throwing out one piece of furniture at a time. Just grab the next thing that's in front of you and throw it out. The wife confesses that she's been letting her bitterness overwhelm her. And the husband confesses that he's been fearful to address her about it. Then the wife confesses that she often doesn't deal with it because it works. And she kind of enjoys the manipulation game. And then he confesses to her that he suspected that, but he's been a coward. He's been afraid of missing out on candle night with Kenny G and reading the Song of Solomon. 
Let him who has ears to hear. Go through the whole storeroom of your temple. Go through the whole storeroom until you've thrown out every piece of furniture. Every last one of them. And make no mistake, as you do this, the price will feel like it's getting higher and higher and higher. Can I go to the next level? Can I throw that one out? I think it's clean enough in here. Can we just stop? Let's just take a break. Don't get rid of every piece of it. Because the alternative is death. That's what sin leads to. If you'll allow me, once again, J.C. Ryle. The parting must come. Though wickedness be sweet in the sinner's mouth, though he hide it under his tongue, though he wish to spare it and forsake it not, yet he must give it up. If he wishes to be saved, he and sin must quarrel if he and God are to be friends. Now there's one more step in our costly crusade against sin, beloved. And it is the most overlooked, even among the Reformed. Reordering your world according to the truth of God's Word. Reordering your world according to the truth of God's Word. Look at the end of verse 9 there. Nehemiah, it says, He returned to the storeroom, the utensils of the house of God, with the grain offerings and the frankincense. He set everything back in order. He wasn't just chucking stuff out. He didn't just tear down. He didn't just demolish. He put things back the way they were supposed to be, according to the word of God. This is just an aside. But we should all admit that it's easier to be hypercritical, to be one of those nitpickers. And we probably could admit that Reformed people are really good at being critical of others. Look at how they don't measure up to God's standard. Look at how lousily they're using their talent. I can tell you they're getting it wrong right now. That's not the way they should do it. And like good Pharisees, we tie up burdens unbearably heavy, but we sit in the comfort of our own minds as judge, unwilling to say or do anything, even to lift a finger in aid. Where are the Christians who build something? Where are the Christians who encourage, who take those often true thoughts, those often right thoughts, those often prescient thoughts, those moments of discernment, and then pay them back to help construct something better for the glory of God? Nehemiah does. In the next section of text, 10 through 13, He witnesses the net result of what the sin of Eliashib forced out of the temple. That is that the Levites ran away. There was nowhere to store their goods. And they were ultimately denied sustenance. So they ran. They went back to their farms. Eliashib's sin was the leaven that was now affecting the entire lump of Judah. It doesn't just stay in that one little room off to the side of the temple. It makes its way all the way through the community. In verse 11, Nehemiah contends, the word literally means rebukes, the officials for their neglect and has the tithe that was due to the Levites restored to them. And then Nehemiah appoints four faithful men to make sure that things don't go south again. Now I want to conclude with his 
kind of breath prayer here in just a minute. But notice that the cost of holiness includes ordering things back according to the truth of the way that God created the world and according to his word. Go back to our spousal analogy for just a minute. It's often difficult to get to the place of honest confession with one another. And if you've ever had one of those conversations, they can be tense. And you might just want to forget everything that happened. Okay, we've apologized. We've confessed to each other. Forgiveness has been offered. Let's just move on. Depending on how difficult the conversation was, a period of rest might be good. Just everybody clear their minds a little bit. But you can't just tear things out. You can't just throw things away. You have to put things back in order. You have to come back together again and have that conversation. Okay, how are we going to do this the way that God wants us to? Sometimes, shortly after confessing to one another, you could personally admit that you're going to walk in the truth going forward. Remember, whatever you say in this moment, read your own mail. Husbands, don't lecture your wives on how they have a difficult time confessing. Well, we got into this mess because... Wives, you don't have to reiterate to your husbands what they did wrong. I mean, I don't want this whole leadership thing to go too far. Him take advantage of me now that I've been vulnerable. But let me just remind him that he's fallible too. You already did that. Don't go back over it again. If it's forgiven and it's under the cross, it's gone. We threw it out. Stop it. Think about this like you both just had surgery to remove this giant 4x4 post sticking out of your eyeball. How absurd would it be with the big eye patches and the stumbling, you're walking around, you're trying to nitpick sawdust out of your spouse's eye. Swords down. No need to fight anymore. Husbands, tell your wife what you plan to do. Dearest, I commit to you to start leading you the way that God commanded me. I will not fear your responses, but gently and firmly address your sin. I will also look for ways to encourage you and to be a ballast of joy continually in our home. Wives, tell your husbands what you will do. Sweetheart, I'm going to memorize scripture to remind me of what God says is true and fight fear or anger. I'm going to put those verses up around the home, and I give you permission to lovingly remind me when I'm having difficult moments. Sweetheart, let's come over here. Let's read this. Let's think about this together. Let's stop and pray about this particular verse. And then there's one more piece to this puzzle, and this one's the one that is going to be easily in all of our minds the most costly. There are some of you that in order to have complete and total victory over this sin, God is waiting for you to involve faithful men in your lives or faithful woman, sisters, if you go to a faithful woman for advice and help. Those who are faithful, He is waiting for you to invite them into this sin battle and be vulnerable before someone outside of your own home before you get victory. This is the part we want to ignore, but look what Nehemiah said. He said, I'm not going to let this happen again. I'm going to pick four guys, and I'm going to make sure... These are the guys I trust. 
We're going to put them over the storeroom of God. We're going to put them around the temple, and they're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. Because this, pl this place belongs to the Lord. Now, I know you have to live with your spouse and your kids. They know your sin better than anyone else. You can't hide it from them. But we love coming to church with the joy mask on. Pretending that we aren't afraid of anything, except perhaps our wife when she's moody. Or that you're this submissive little darling of a wife, when really you're a puppeteer at home. But can we just admit to one another that this kabuki theater show is ridiculous? Isn't this silly? It's so stupid. Do you really think that you can conceal your sin? Moses said in Numbers 32, be sure of this. Your sin's going to find you out. It will. The storeroom of Eliashib, he chose a big one. This is huge. He's not trying to hide anything. Know that what you care the most about, you're storing all that good stuff there in that big storeroom of your heart. People can see that. You think they can't, but they can. Who here today wants to say that they have it all figured out? Who walked in this morning and said, my wife, my husband, we've got it all figured out. We have a perfect marriage. We never have conflict. We never have problems. Our children are perfect. They always behave. None of your elders or their wives would admit to something like that. And don't buy the slander garbage that's going to come from the enemy when he says something like, nobody else but you is down in this ditch. So nobody's really going to understand. Why would you go tell somebody else? They won't, they won't resonate with what you're saying. Again, it is entirely possible that God may be holding out victory over your specific sins until you get humble enough to tell a trusted advisor what's going on. Until you get help cleaning out your temple, accountability to not go back to that place again. So what was the cost of pursuing this holiness Without which, the Bible tells us, we won't see the Lord. What's the price of examining yourself according to the word? And through confession, casting out the sin that it exposes. Finally, putting things back together the way that Jesus wants them. For you, what is the cost? What's it going to take? Nothing less than the death of self. Repeatedly. Regularly. Multiple times a day if necessary. Day after day after day. There's another name for this whole process we've been going through this whole time. It's a big theme in this section of text. It's called repentance. Can I ask a question? Have you here, listening to my voice now, have you truly repented to the Lord? Nehemiah concludes this first wave of costly reforms, this first half of chapter 13 this morning with one of those brief prayers. He says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loving kindness, which I have shown for the house of my God and its responsibilities. He believes that God might just remember him for all the good that he has done for the people. That's his hope. That's what he believes. Lost person, will God remember your good deeds on this earth? Will they be enough to tip the balance of his favor in your presence when you stand before a mighty God? No, they will not. 
His standard of righteousness isn't our best. It's perfection. But as my daughter mentioned last night, Nehemiah points to another who would come and clean out the temple, whose zeal for the Lord's house would be unmatched, who counted the high cost of the bounty that sin had lain on the heads of his people. Though it would cost him his life, Jesus Christ, God's only son, did almost 2,000 years ago to the year pay that exact price. He paid it in full. And now he welcomes all who come into his kingdom where his father, the judge, will always listen to the prayers of his son. As you stoop low, lost person, if you come to Christ, if you repent and put your faith and your trust in him, Jesus will place within you his own perfect righteousness. And he will turn to the father and he will say something like this. Remember him, father. Remember her, Father, for all this righteousness of mine. And never again blot out my loving kindness, which I have shown for this new living stone in the house of my God. And, as we see, whenever Christ comes, the glory of God will again fill his temple. Father, we want that to be the case all across this county and all across this world. We want the glory of the Lord to fill the temple of the body of your people. We don't know who those are, so we cast the seed broadly and pray for the increase. And we pray this morning that your gospel work would have fruit in the hearts of those who do not believe. Even those whose disobedience has led to a very hard heart. Breakthrough and save. And for those of us who are in Christ, who are walking with Christ, but find this morning, as Nehemiah did, that we've got storerooms in the temple of our heart for sin. And we've even made it very comfortable in there. And it's going to be costly to get it out of our lives. Lord, would you give courage and strength to remove every last piece of furniture in that place, that there would be no more welcoming of those foreign things in our hearts anymore, but that the full presence of the Holy Spirit would again return to us because our temple has been cleansed through repentance and faith, and we're trusting you again, and then help us to do that as often as we need, again and again, day after day, as we seek your face. And we know that we will be conformed into the image of Christ. We pray all of these things in his name. Amen.